This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. Would you take your Bible now and go to Luke chapter 6? As Pastor Jeff has brought our Untwisting the Truth sermon series to a close, um, I have the opportunity here to follow that series with a word from Jesus that I believe is a fitting way to encapsulate all that we have been challenged with over these last several weeks. When it comes down to it, one of the reasons why we have to do the hard work of untwisting the truth is because at the end of the day, what's most important is that when, we, when there is dissonance between what the culture says and with what God says, we always constantly must remember that we have to take our stand with Jesus. When the world says one thing and God's word says another thing, we as the church of Jesus Christ, we must always be resolved to take our stand with Jesus. Amen? And so these words from Christ are very fitting, calling us to take our stand on the authority of God's word. And so let me direct your attention now to Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. Let us hear the word of God. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When a stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. That is God's word. May he have his blessing to its reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the year 1521, from April 16th through the 18th, the German reformer Martin Luther stood before Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms, not a diet of worms. The purpose for this assembly uh, was to urge Martin Luther to renounce his biblical teaching contained in 25 books and articles. The most prominent among those books and articles was the notable 95 Theses. The 95 Theses was nailed to the doors of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and has been acknowledged as the starting point of the Protestant Reformation. Luther's big deal, his central concern, not only in all of his writings at this time, but especially in those 95 Theses, that central concern of his actually became the central concern of the entire Reformation, and it was this, that the Scriptures alone 
possessed the divine authority to settle all matters of faith and practice. That the scriptures alone possess the final authority on all matters of faith and practice. To believe in the full and final authority of the Bible was to stand with God. To deny the full and final authority of the scriptures was a betrayal of God. And so in a room full of magistrates and religious somebodies and what would have been referred to as the modern day paparazzi of Luther's time, Luther stood before the emperor and he was asked by the emperor's spokesperson, Martin Luther, will you recant? In other words, Martin Luther, will you renounce all your teachings? And with great authority, Martin Luther said, can I pray about it? He really did. No joke. There was a humanness to Luther. I mean, imagine the moment for him. Was he prepared to take his stand and even be willing to die for his biblical convictions? I mean, that's what was at stake at this moment. If he did not recant, he would likely be labeled a heretic. And in most instances, that would mean burning at the stake. So Luther spent the next 24 hours praying, seeking wise counsel, and then he reappeared before the emperor and was asked again, Martin Luther, will you recant? This is when the Holy Spirit filled Martin Luther's soul with courage that could only come from God, and he said the following with great conviction. Unless I am refuted, and convicted by the testimonies of the scriptures or by clear arguments, I am conquered by the holy scriptures quoted by me, and my conscience is bound by the word of God. I cannot and will not recant of anything since it is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against the conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And with those words, the deed of Worms concluded, followed by the releasing of the edict of Worms, condemning Luther as a heretic. Now, church, we may never stand before government and religious leaders like Martin Luther did in that moment. But church, every single one of us who claim to follow Jesus must have the same deep-rooted conviction in our souls. That no matter what, we will take our stand with Jesus by taking our stand with the Word of God. My brothers and sisters, as Pastor Jeff has painted so clearly over these last several weeks, we are living in a culture that creates more and more space between what it legitimizes and what the Bible authorizes. And because of this, there's an ever-growing chasm between Christian conviction and modern invention. And more and more followers of Jesus, people like you and people like me, will be put in a position to have to courageously take our stand with Jesus by taking our stand with the Word of God. And so I ask you this morning, in earnestness, are you ready for that? 
Are you prepared to take your stand with Jesus? Even though we're 500 plus years removed from the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, the central conviction of the Reformation remains the central conviction of the church today. The scriptures alone possess the authority to determine all matters of faith and practice. So to take our stand with Jesus is to take our stand with the word of God. To embrace the final and full authority of God's word is to stand with God. To deny the full and final authority of God's word is a betrayal of God. So again, what should we do, church? When there is dissonance between what the culture says about something and what the word of God says about something. Church, here's what we do. We take our stand with the Bible. Because we take our stand with the author of the Bible. We take our stand with the triune God. And this is the heart of what Jesus is teaching in Luke 6, 46 to 49. This is what Jesus is getting at and this is what we want to dive into this morning. Disciples of Jesus must build their lives on the authority of the Word of God. That's the big idea we want to dive into this morning. Disciples of Jesus must build their lives on the authority of the Word of God. So please ask yourself, and this should be a deeply convicting question for every single one of us, including this preacher. Am I actively building my life on the authority of the Word of God. And so we want to consider how we do that this morning. How do we build our lives on the authority of the Word of God? Let's consider the Word of Christ before us. Our text is Luke chapter 6, 46 to 49, and it's the end of Luke's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew gives the longer version of this sermon in Matthew 5 through chapter 7. But here Luke gives an abbreviated version in chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. And so the Sermon on the Mount is about the king and his kingdom, about the Savior and his subjects. And Jesus is teaching in this sermon that the, the kingdom is comprised of all those who follow and place their loyalty and allegiance in the king. And so to live your life under the kingdom of God, under the kingship of Jesus, to, to live your life under the authority of God is to live your life under the authority of the king's words. And so at the end of this sermon, Jesus is concerned. Jesus is concerned that not everyone who says, Jesus, you're my king, is truly, loyally committed to follow him no matter what. So that's what prompts him to ask the question of verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So to get the concern of Jesus in this moment, because it might seem like Jesus is being a little tough here. He should be excited. Crowds of people are following him. But here's what you need to understand about the crowds. Even though Jesus sort of had, had become a, a rock star in his day and age with, with thousands of people flocking to him, they were not all doing so because they wanted to follow Jesus. They were doing so because they were mystified. They were curious. They were there for the jaw-dropping miracles. They were there to get the bread. They were there because Jesus, in their mind, was a means to an end. And so Jesus is concerned that all those who publicly identify with him 
are truly committed to following him as their savior king. And so Jesus asked them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you're not doing what I say? In other words, that's a negative way of, of stating a positive reality. That disciples of Jesus must build their lives on the words of Christ. Disciples of Jesus must build their lives on the word of God. If we say we follow Jesus, then we ought to hang on to every one of his words. Amen? So how do we do that? How do we build our lives on the authority of God's word? Well, let me suggest that we build our lives on the authority of God's word in three ways. We must build our lives on the authority of God's word with conviction, with courage, and with compassion. With conviction, with courage, and compassion. First, conviction. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, then you must hold dear this central conviction of the Christian faith that the word of God is the supreme authority in your life. Where does this come from? Notice the question again. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? The title Lord here in the original language means one with supreme authority. The double use of the Lord, Lord is a rhetorical device to emphatically declare something. So he's basically saying, why do those of you who emphatically declare that I am your supreme authority, why do you not submit yourself to the authority of my words? In other words, it's not, this is not a passive profession of faith. This is a passionate claim. Jesus is my Lord. Notice that Jesus doesn't reject this title. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, why do you call me Lord, Lord? That's not who I am. I'm a good teacher. I'm a miracle worker. I'm simply one of the many good prophets. No, no. He receives this title, church, because it's who he is. Jesus is Lord. He is the supreme authority. He is the king of the kingdom. In fact, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. What he says goes in heaven and on earth. He's the ruler of all time over the entire cosmos. You may remember that after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the apostle Paul says this about Jesus in Philippians 2, 10 through 12. And he was given a name. That's above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Same word. To the glory of God the Father. Through the triumphs of his life, death, and resurrection, the Father has given Jesus an honor that we must embrace and declare as well. That because of the triumphs of his life, death, and resurrection, because of who he is in his humanity, because of who he is in his deity, Jesus deserves to be called one thing and one thing only, supreme. Lord, above all, Overall, and whether it's done actively in this life or passively before the judgment seat of God, every knee will bow and say it. Jesus Christ is Lord. He does not deny this title. 
he receives this title because, church, it's who he is. Jesus is our Lord. He's our king. And this is not legalism. This is lordship. Whatever he says goes. He's over us. And he's over us in love and mercy and grace, but also in truth and righteousness and holiness. So do you agree with the Father? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe that he is the supreme authority in your life? What he says goes. What he says to believe you must believe. How he says you must behave, you must behave. Not to gain his approval, but because you already have it. The triumphs of his death and resurrection. Have you submitted to Jesus as your supreme authority? So how do you know? If your answer is yes. How do you know if it's really yes? That's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus makes it clear in this question. His word functionally governs your life. His words. God's word. The Holy Scriptures. The Bible. The word of God. Functionally governs your life. This is Jesus. He's applying the pressure. He loves us. He cares for us. The answer to this question is the difference between heaven and hell and a stable life and an unstable life. Jesus wants you to know that you cannot say that he is your Lord if you are not submitted to his word as the functional authority in your life. Notice that I'm not saying that you must perfectly obey his word in your life. No, it's a posture of submission. What he says goes. It's a heart that says, Jesus, because you are my supreme authority, what you say functionally governs all that I believe and how I behave. So that's what this question is about, church. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In other words, why do you address me as the one who has supreme authority in your life and yet do not, do not submit to my word as the supreme authority in your life? So what's the point? The way we functionally submit to the supreme authority of Jesus is to live our lives in unqualified submission to his word. That's another way of saying we build our lives on the authoritative teaching of the Bible. The whole Bible is the word of Christ from Genesis to Revelation. And to submit to the word of God is to submit to Jesus himself. Kevin DeYoung, in his helpful book on the nature of Scripture, makes the following observation. He says, submission to the Scriptures is submission to God. Rebellion against the Scriptures is rebellion against God. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus, this is Christ's expectation for your life. That you build, the, you build your life on the solid rock and authority of his word. Notice how this expectation is clearly laid out in verse 47 as we move down the text. Jesus says, everyone who comes to me 
and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. So this is the rhythm of the follower of Jesus. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does what I say, I'm going to tell you what that person's like, but, but hearing that, a, a discipleship rhythm. This is how disciples of Jesus live. When we want to know what we should believe, when we want to know how we should behave, this is what we do. We come to Jesus by coming to his word. We listen to what he says and we believe it. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, this is what he's like. This is the, the life of discipleship. This is the rhythm of life of the person who is functionally submitted to God's word as the supreme authority in their lives. They come to Jesus. They listen to what he says, and they submit to it. So this is what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to come to him. Listen to what he says. And believe it and do it. So this must be the posture of our hearts as we come to the Bible. Again, to refer to our most recent sermon series, this is what we've been doing over these last several weeks. We don't go to the culture. We don't go to social media. We don't go to politicians. We don't go to cultural commentators or Instagram influencers to find out what we should believe or how we should behave. Church, we come to Jesus. It sounds so simple, but we are so easily led astray. We are, it sounds so simple, but we are, we are often so captivated by the words of others when it is the words of God that have final say and authority in our lives. So coming to Jesus, hearing what he says about everything the word of God addresses must be our instinct for all matters of faith and practice. So when we ask the question, what's our supreme authority on who God is and how we can know him? How do we answer that question? We come to Jesus and we listen to what he says and we believe it. What's our supreme authority on how to deal with the shame and guilt of our sin? Well, here's what we do. We, we come to Jesus. We listen to what he says and we believe it. What do we, what's, our, what's our supreme authority on matters of human sexuality and gender identity and marriage and sanctity of life and race and ethnicity and the role of human government and even what we prayed for this morning? How should we even think about war and, and evil dictators and rulers? Here's what we do. We don't come up with our own thoughts. We come to Jesus. We listen to what he says and we believe it. Is this how you relate to Jesus? When you want to know what you should believe about something, you come to him, you listen to what he says, and you embrace it. This is what it looks like to build your life on the authority of God's word. When this is the rhythm of your life, coming to him, listening to what he says, banking on it, believing it, and behaving in accordance with it. Here's what Jesus says you're like. Look at verse 48 and 49. When you do this, you are like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. 
And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Jesus is saying that when we build our lives on the authority of his word, it's like building a house with a strong and stable foundation. And if you know me well, you know what to not expect at this moment. You are not going to get a really good industrious illustration from something I built. Because I'm not good at building things. I can break things and paint things. And so if you need help breaking things and painting things, you can ask some of the people in this room. I can help you do that. I can take a wrecking bar to a wall that needs to come down. I can take paint and a paintbrush and make something look nice. But if you want me to build something, don't ask me. It will fall apart. So I had no illustration, but, but I think this is just common. This is common for us to understand. If you're going to build a stable structure... It begins with the work underneath. It begins with the foundation. And when the foundation is deep and strong and made of good, strong materials, then what's built upon that foundation is stable and sturdy. So Jesus is saying that when we build our lives on the authority of his word. It's like building a house with a strong and stable foundation. So when the floods come and beat against the house, it remains standing. It won't fall. So stability in life. Changing times, changing cultures, ups and downs, heart aches and heart leaps joys and sorrows, all the ups and downs of life. We can be stable and not fall apart when our lives are rooted on the firm foundation, built on the strong foundation of God's words. Contrast that with the person who claims to be a disciple of Jesus and doesn't build their life on the authority of God's word. Look at verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Church, when we fail to build our lives on the functional authority of God's word, we are, we are vulnerable to be taken out by the floods of life. We are vulnerable to collapsing under the weight of changing times and changing cultures and even personal difficulties that arise in their individual lives. The floods of life in context are very general. It's the hard stuff that comes at you. It's when the hard and heartbreaking stuff of life happens. What will keep you stable? When the unexpected tragedy hits your life, what will keep you strong and stable? As is happening very often in our culture today, that someone who, who says they've always been a follower of Jesus has, has declared that they've left the faith. What are you going to do when someone you love tells you that they've changed their mind on what it means to be a man or a woman? What are you going to do when someone that you love dearly hurts your heart so deeply. Jesus says that when your life 
is built on the solid rock foundation of his word, then you will be able to weather those floods. Withstand those storms. It doesn't make it less stormy. It doesn't make it less floody. I think I just made up a word there. Floods are floods. Storms are storms. But you will make it through when Jesus and his words are your foundation. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, makes the following observation about this illustration. He says, the picture of the verse is clear. Anyone who listens to Jesus' words is in a solid position to resist life's trials. To listen to Jesus' teaching is to provide a basis to stabilize all of life. You can't control what happens in your life. You, you understand that, right? I can't control what happens in my life. But according to Jesus, you can do what it takes to make sure that your life is stable through all the ups and downs of life. You want to stabilize your life? Jesus says, build your life on my words. Do what I say. Now, being a pastor for over 20 years has been an unbelievable privilege. I cannot believe that my, in God's grace, my job has been to do what I'm doing now for the last 20 years and, and come alongside followers of Jesus who are, who are seeking to live their lives according to the word of God and to, and to help when it's hurting and to support when it's difficult and to encourage when, when, when there's, there's grace abounding. But one of the most difficult experiences I've had or continue to have as a pastor over the last 20 years is when I sit down with someone I love and I say, if you do this, you are going against Christ. And if you go against Christ and his words, I can't promise you this is going to go well. I've sat down with people who were, who were in that moment of decision of, of whether or not they should marry an unbeliever or whether or not they will, they will repent of sexual promiscuity, or whether or not they will take the job that will take them out of church. And I remember time and time again, sadly, when sitting down with professing disciples of Jesus and saying, here's what God's word says, here's what you're facing, please don't make the decision you're about to make. And then they do. And this illustration tells the story. Disciples of Jesus must build their lives on the authority of God's word. It is the only stabilizing reality in the life of the Christian. This must be the foundational conviction of your life. It's the basis for stabilizing all of life. And so if you've been tracking with me, I'm about out of time for this sermon, and I've covered one of my three points. Now, I was fully prepared for this. These next two points are by way of application, and they're very brief. If we're going to do this, if we're going to build our lives on this conviction 
that the word of God must be our supreme authority on all matters of faith and practice, then we must not just do this, we must do this in a particular manner with both courage and compassion. Let's talk about courage for a few moments. If you're still open to Luke chapter 6, earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount, listen to what Jesus says in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Notice that it doesn't say they do all this stuff against you because of what sports team you follow. Notice they don't say that they do all this stuff to you because of what political party you're a part of. Notice that they don't say they do all this stuff to you because of where you stand on whether we should go the mass or no mass when we're told we're allowed to. Notice that Jesus says, bless are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn you on account of the Son of Man. In other words, when you live your life in allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and you experience this kind of treatment, what do you do? Jesus indicates that when you live your life under his kingdom authority, you run the risk of being hated, excluded, reviled, and slandered. Hatred means antagonistic rejection. Excluded means intentionally being left out. The picture is being severed or cut off like an amputated body part. The word revile here means to be scolded or severely complained and talked about. Spurring your name literally means to throw your name around like it's garbage. In other words, according to the way of Jesus, when we live under his authority, you might get canceled. So if you live your life in submission to the authority of God's word, you can expect to at times be mistreated and misrepresented. It's what they did to Jesus. So followers of Jesus are supposed to buckle up and expect the same. And this takes courage. It takes courage to stand with Jesus when you're being stood against. In our culture, this kind of persecution may not always be felt physically, but very often it's felt relationally, right? Uh, one night, Rachel and I were spending time with a family from one of the other congregations around here that we've helped lead and plant. And they were sharing with us how they experienced what Jesus is talking about here. And I asked if I could share this. And they captured the experience this way. After living in our neighborhood for a short time, our kids created friendships with the children next door. Their friendships were easygoing and they played together almost daily. While we adults weren't quite as close as the children, my husband and I saw potential to grow our friendship. That is, until our son invited their children to vacation Bible school. We learned this was a huge offense to them by the mother's response to the invitation, we don't love your Jesus. Since then, we've experienced their rejection for the past two years, like being excluded from neighborhood hangouts. At times, this caused us to feel like prisoners in our own home and left us feeling hurt and sad and frustrated. It was our desire to have great relationships with all of our neighbors and be given opportunities to share Christ with them. And instead, we were the family being talked about as others spent time together. Church, sometimes people might treat you like that on your block because of your allegiance to Jesus. People might hate you because you stand with Jesus. 
People might exclude you because you stand with Jesus. People might talk about you, slander you because you stand with Jesus. But here's Jesus' exhortation. Take courage. Why? Your Father will reward you for standing with His Son. Look at verse 23. Rejoice in that day. The day that you're hated, excluded, and slandered. Why? Leave for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Here is the justice and mercy of God delayed. When we are mistreated for standing with Jesus on earth, we will be rewarded in heaven. And church, you know what that means? We need to wait. And we need to take courage. Jesus says, don't be discouraged. He says, leap for joy. For great is your reward. So we must hold the conviction that God's word is our supreme authority with courage. But how are we to treat the ones who mistreat us for standing with Jesus? Finally, we must hold this conviction not only with courage, but also with compassion. If you're still there in Luke 6, look at verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus says that when people do hurtful things to you because you stand with him, we must not, you must not do hurtful things back. Love your enemies before the ones who are against you. Do good things to those who've done hateful things to you. Say kind things to those who've said slanderous things to you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If you're like me, that goes against everything in your being. I had a friend who recently told me about someone who assaulted them. And in that moment, God gave this Christian courage not to assault back. And there was a part of me that as I was hearing this story, I wanted to be able to say, I wish I was there with you and here's what I would have done. Now, this isn't a, this isn't a command not to defend yourself. I'm not saying that at all. But Jesus is making a point. We don't treat others like they treat us. We treat others like we want them to treat us. So Jesus isn't just talking the talk, church. Jesus walks the walk. Not too long after this sermon, Jesus is mistreated for taking his stand with the Father. He's betrayed by Judas. He's deserted by his closest friends and followers. He's denied by Peter. He's falsely accused by the religious leaders based on false witness. He's condemned and crucified on false pretenses. He's mocked and beaten and spit upon and then nailed to a cross. And what does he do? How does Jesus treat those who nailed him to the cross? He looks down at them. And he says to the Roman centurions who just moments ago hammered the nails in his hands and his feet, and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't 
know what they're doing. Jesus didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. He practiced what he preached. Be merciful as I am merciful. Church, those who've received mercy, show mercy in Jesus' name. Disciples of Jesus must build their lives on the authority of God's word. We must do this with conviction. We must not flinch from God's word being our supreme authority on all matters of faith and practice. We must hold that conviction deeply and dearly without budging. And one of the reasons why we have one another in community is so that when we're tempted, when we're tempted to come out from underneath the authority of his word, we hold each other accountable to it. We must hold this conviction, but we must hold it in the right way, with courage, because sometimes we're rejected for standing with Jesus and with compassion. Because the very same people who mistreat us for standing with Jesus, don't we want to see them one day stand with Jesus? Don't we want to see them one day bowing their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord? Knowing the, the, the freedom of forgiveness that's only found in him. And so church, let's take our stand with Jesus, with conviction with courage, and with compassion. Here we stand. We can do no other. God help us. Amen.